Hugo Bound Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with Tanya Kasharali about end-to-end data science. Tanya is a data scientist and consultant that helps businesses get the most out of data across many industries, including government, healthcare, telecommunications, education, financial services, and life sciences. Tanya is also the founder and CEO of TCB Analytics, a consulting firm specializing in data and analytics with experience building comprehensive solutions designed to help clients most effectively extract actionable insights. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about what end-to-end data science actually looks like across many industries, such as retail, defense, biotech, and sports, including scoping out projects, figuring out the correct questions to ask, how projects can change, delivering on the initial promise, the importance of rapid prototyping, what it means to put models in production, and how to measure success, one of the holy grails of the work we do. So a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. Also, this episode was recorded as a YouTube live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams, and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. Now, in this conversation, Tanya talks us through some shiny, that's our dashboarding tool, uh, shiny code that she screen shared. We do our best to talk through it, but definitely check out the video also if you think it would help. And we actually have a live stream coming up soon with Eric Ma about research data science in biotech, and we'll include the link in the show notes to sign up if you'd like to come and join us for that. So Eric leads research data science in the data science and AI group at Moderna Therapeutics. Prior to that, he was part of a special ops data team at the Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research's informatics department. And Eric does so many more things, including we're actually writing a book together on Bayesian inference at the moment, and we may even talk about that. So I hope to see you there. All right, let's jump in. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Tanya, I'd love to kind of know your origin story, how you got into the data world. So maybe you could tell us a bit about your journey to where you are now. My origin story. It's like yeah. a Marvel hero. It like is, comic isn't it? Book. Yeah. Not as exciting though. No. <laughs> yeah. That's or that. even more exciting. I mean. Yeah, maybe. I, um, well, I was born in 1985. <laughs> no, but I, I actually like, I always liked computers. I always liked technology. I, I think I would play on my friends' computers and then we finally got one, I think, when I was in like seventh grade or something. But regardless, I remember a, a fr- family friend showing me something called QBasic. 
And he's like, yeah, you can like enter in commands and make your own programs and code. And I think the very first thing I coded was um, an insult generator in QBasic. <laughs> it was like a Amazing. list of adjectives and a list of nouns. And it was like very juvenile insults back then. It was like, you dirty pile of maggots, you know, you'd like <laughs> generate it. And so anyway, I, uh, I always knew I, I wanted to do something with computers, majored in computer science and added, ended up adding biology because I took an elective in neuro uh, psychology and got very interested in the brain and neurotransmitters. And I then learned about this whole field called bioinformatics, which is like analyzing molecular data. So gene expression data, uh, genetic data, proteomic data, basically all these inner workings of the body to help further personalized medicine, personalized mm. cancer treatments. And I was just blown away by that whole world. So anyway, I, I got very lucky at Northeastern to work my first co-op which is an internship program at Northeastern where you work for six months full time and then you go back to school six months. So you're doing like the real world and then back to class. And I got to work for very well-known PhD MDs at Harvard Medical. And I was, I had no idea what I was doing. They threw me into R in like 2005. Mm. And before I knew it, I was just... And so you were in Boston, like Boston area. Yeah. At, at that point, which is such an amazing place for this type of work as well, right? Yeah. Like biology, oh, yeah. biotech now, bioinformatics. Exactly. So I, I felt like I, I kind of got in on the ground floor with that stuff. I mean, I feel um, I was somewhat of an early adopter of R because of that, you know. Beautiful. My, 2005. My yeah. My boss was wow. like, go home. And, you're going to go learn something called R. And I printed out the entire Crayon booklet. And brought it home over like summer break and started flipping through it. And I was like, wow, this is, this doesn't look easy. <laughs> and there was no like tidyverse then, or were there even no. data frames in R at that point? Yes, but there was no, I was a lot of matrix work. We we're doing a lot of stuff with matrices. There was no, I think ggplot was like barely out, if, if at all, at that point. You know, that's why I get so excited about like the Plotly libraries and the D3 libraries and the, and Shiny being able to put together a whole web app because yep. it used to just be like you print your charts, you put together, a, you know, maybe a presentation and that's it. It just kind of collects dust. Yep. And now we build like these living, breathing data solutions. Amazing. And for those who maybe don't know what ggplot is, it's for data visualization. The other types of tools we're talking about, we'll get, we'll get into what, what they are, what they do and why they're useful. I, I will add this was. A decade later that I was living and working in Connecticut, working in cell biology and biophysics. And I wasn't specifically working in genomics or bioinformatics, but I was working with a bunch of people who were. And that's when I started using R a lot as well. And particularly, I mean, R became the programming language R, but data work became prominent across a lot of different disciplines. But as far as I could tell, Biology in basic science research was one of the big yeah. ones where yeah. it demonstrated a huge amount of value. And, and yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I work in Python a lot as well. So compared to Python in biology, R was incredibly strong. Yeah, it was, you know, by a lot of biologists using it, a lot of statisticians using it, and, you know, very high presence in academia. And that's kind of where I started. And there were a lot of packages that could analyze this microarray data, which is, you know, the gene expression chips that are coming off these very expensive machines. So to have a free tool that like did all that was just really amazing, I think, yep. back at that time. But yeah, then I I did a couple startups, I did a couple biotech companies. I worked outside of healthcare for a bit, came back to healthcare, ultimately started TCB Analytics in 2015. So we're going into our mm -hmm. eighth year of business. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. 
And so in between 2005 and starting TCB, you worked for some pretty big places as well, right? Yeah. So my first job was uh, working at a biotech startup called GNS Healthcare, uh, run by incredibly talented, smart PhDs out of Cornell. These were physicists, statisticians. My boss was the guy that like worked on the initial microarray chip. And then, you know, after I left there, I learned just a ton there. I was just a sponge, you know, that was my whole mm. thing early on in my career was just learn as much as I could from all these people that are way smarter than me. And then after that, I ended up going to a distributed databases company called Basho, which was like, they were the creators of React, which is a NoSQL, kind of like a MongoDB database mm-hmm. company. After that, I wanted more management experience. I went to a telecom data company called Comlink Data, where I ran the data team, built out the data products there. And I think they were acquired a few years later. I went back to Biogen, big Fortune 500. They're the big drug maker for multiple sclerosis. And yeah, I was there about nine months and I'm lucky. My boss was very supportive when I left and he said, well, bring us on as a client. And so I got to work with a bunch of different departments at Biogen and we still work with them. Incredible. Yeah. It must be, I suppose before we dive more into what you're up to now, the differences between working in a place like Biogen and running your own consulting firm doesn't seem like there are things as different as those two, right? Yeah, very different. <laughs> it really is all, it all comes down to personal preference too, right? Like yeah. I, I did not know, I'd say I really enjoyed learning from people at my first job and delivering on these high profile projects for, you know, the Pfizer's and the Merck's of the world. But after a couple of years, you just feel like, okay, I'm a cog in a wheel or, and I was at a small company. I, I did startups, but you're feeling like, okay, I'm starting to do kind of a little bit of everything. I'm helping write proposals helping sell and bring in business and I'm delivering on projects. So I'm thinking, I don't have that much stock option, right? Like I don't have that much uh, stake in the company. Yeah, no doubt. And I'd, I'd wear myself out. I would just go hard on all my jobs that I had because I just, I enjoyed it, enjoyed what I did. Mm. And so I didn't like sitting at a cubicle desk all day either. I didn't like answering to someone, whether it's my boss or just having to be somewhere at all times. I enjoy my freedom and flexibility. I think a lot of people after COVID are probably in the same boat now. But yeah, just a lot of reasons. And I like kind of making decisions, being able to do things the way I want to do them. So for me, yeah, like starting my own company was kind of the way to go. Some people actually prefer that structure, being at the office every day, like working on something, doing one thing very well for a long period of time. And that's one thing I did enjoy while I was at Biogen was I'm just going to focus on, you know, one project, take my time learn some things while I'm here. But I'll be honest, I got bored very quickly. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I mean, I've worked in and out of startup land for some time now and several early stage startups and so different to academia. I mean, one thing I really love, you don't necessarily have all the support you do from a big bureaucracy, but there's so much less red tape and the project turnaround time is so, I mean, you know, particularly working in scientific research in biology, it could be two to three years between start of a project and end of a project, as opposed to like weekly or sub or under weekly uh, yeah. uh, turnaround times in startup land. So the excitement of that for the time being and the past half a yeah. decade to a decade for me has been incredibly exciting. So the red tape is huge too, right? Like I like being able to just go to AWS, and like spin something up and I don't have to like put it through 10, you know, I got to go through legal to like, you know, yeah. write a blog post. <laughs> yeah. So. And in all honesty, I don't mind a bit of red tape when I understand why it's there. Yeah. And, but when it, you know, 
when I feel like I'm wrapped in it, you know, and I have to tear it off my face. That you don't can... want to be the you don't want to be a Christmas gift with all the bows on exactly, you. Know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a bit about your business now and, and what you do. Yeah. So we still have quite a strong presence in health life sciences and healthcare. So we work with big pharma, a couple of big pharma companies. Uh we actually just signed couple new small pharma. And when I say small, mm-hmm. I, I want to say more like anywhere from 50 to 500 employees. And I I really enjoy those because they, the group we're starting to work with is there are enthusiasts and they want to learn more and they've already got, you know, our connect set up and they've got a really cool opportunity as well, where they just, they have some, they have information on patients, their cancer patients and the process they have to go through to get access to the the drugs that this company is creating and there's hangups and there's financial assistance programs that need to have, they have to go through. There's, you know, shipping, there's all kinds of delays that can happen along this process from drug to getting it to the patient. And right now the way they have to identify those bottlenecks is just very manual through Excel. And I was like, Oh, this is like perfect. You know, we can build you a shiny app that automates all of this, gives you exactly where the hangups are, points you to the right place says, hey, I need to make a phone call about this patient because this they haven't had received their medication and it's been X number of days. That's one example, but yeah, small pharma like that. The big pharma, we do a lot of work around clinical trials, helping them either manage their clinical trial data from an operations standpoint, like which sites are recruiting patients the fastest, which ones are lagging behind and why. And so we do a lot of work on that. And then we work outside of healthcare. So we work with a... Actually, some of the demos I have lined up are around a sports tech company. And their whole value prop is that they understanding and engaging the fan of the future. So the way we engage and with sports content, as you probably know, has been changing, right? We used to watch it on the TV or listen to it on the radio. Now we've got apps, we're betting on the game where you could bet inside some of the stadiums, you can interact with the athletes on social. Mm. So they're kind of at the forefront of like, how do we engage with the future fan, the younger fans, keep people engaged and coming back to consume that sports content. So yeah, I'd say, you know, it's kind of all over. We also work in financial services, uh, government, as you mentioned, education. Anywhere that there's data, where it's data is kind of being generated as a, as a result of day-to-day business operations or where data is their product, typically you can work with them. Great. And I do want to jump into kind of the the work you do in these industries and the value that you think data science can generate and maybe what we're missing as well. But before that, we've mentioned Shiny and Arconnect a few times. So maybe you could just say a bit about what kind of the different tools in the landscape that you use are just to to set the scene. Yeah, well, from a lot of R, you know, R is a programming language that Hugo and I were talking about very I think it's very beginner-friendly if you have never programmed before. It's got a great community, really friendly people uh, online to help you. And then, of course, SQL. I think having SQL knowledge in general is key because a lot of the tools now, like Tableau, Looker, the kind of business intelligence tools, what they're doing under the hood is SQL anyway. And it can be a dangerous thing where it might be doing something you think looks right, but when it abstracts away the SQL, if you're not able to kind of check that, you can get in trouble there. So tools like Tableau are SQL. We're doing a lot of work with Snowflake lately. It's a the columnar database that enables you to just very quickly load data in massive data sets and query them very quickly. So we'll connect, you know, our Tableaus or our app, shiny apps to Snowflake. 
some Python here and there for more like um, when we're building kind of data pipelines. Um, so moving data through, adding checkpoints and testing. And I'd say that covers probably most of it. If I think of another one, if it comes up, I'll let you know, but that probably well, covers a lot of it. And so Shiny and R-Connect as well. Yeah. Sh yeah. Shiny for the dashboarding. We're, we're actually making a, a big focus towards Shiny this year. We're kind of shifting gears away from more of the... We've done some more of the backend, like data structuring and optimization and, and databases, and we're moving more towards... We want to focus on what we're good at, which is we'll build you a data product that's going to help you actually take action on those insights in a way that is useful and not just slapping together a bunch of charts somewhere that looks pretty. Exactly. And I think something we'll get to is how Shiny and dashboarding tools in general, but Shiny in particular, have allowed you to rapidly iterate with clients, not go and build something in the abstract and then you deliver it, but show them prototypes and get their feedback, inject their domain expertise into it and, and yeah. figure out what's most useful for them as well and the rapid nature of that. But before we get there, I suppose I'm wondering what what is some of the biggest value that you think data science can deliver to businesses that you've worked with? Yeah, I think the biggest value we've seen is typically around distilling. Anytime you have a lot of data and there's a manual process involved with distilling it down into something that needs to happen, that's where we have the biggest, I think, impact. So it sounds obvious, but you'd be amazed. Like there's a lot of clients that'll come to us, think they need machine learning or something or think they need this uh, fancy visualization or dashboard when really they just need a little bit of automation mm. and the answer put in front of them. So for example, the, the biogen, dr the drug manufacturing work we did, there is a process when drugs are manufactured, but it's a very expensive, very time consuming process. And you have, you can imagine it just as pieces that go into the recipe to make the drugs. If one of those lots or pieces is contaminated, or if something is wrong, it goes, you know, it goes through every step and it forms a new, a new sort of combination of recipe or a piece in that recipe. And then it forms another one. And you have this kind of tree that goes from beginning to end. You get a lot of things to check and you've got to figure out when did the contamination come in and what mm. else is affected downstream. So they were doing this highly manually, pulling data from SQL putting like five, 10 people on it. It would take them months and months to, they'd have to shut down drug manufacturing and find the culprit and then, you know, resume. So- And that sounds incredibly expensive as well to shut down manufacturing, yes, right? Exactly. And this is a common problem. This is, you know, across all pharmaceutical companies, they have this issue. So we built something that allows them to search that data. It pulls up basically a tree, it builds a, a network diagram and you can keep walking through it and get to, it essentially is a guided kind of user exploration tool. And at the end of the day, we cut down from that five person team, six months to one or two people in a week to, to find that Amazing. problem. And so that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions yeah. of savings just from, you know, this shiny app that yeah. we built in collaboration with our a scientist there who was awesome. He was very good at just like coming to us with initial requirements and mock-ups and we iterated really fast with him. Amazing. So one thing I'm hearing here is that people may want machine learning, AI, all of these types of things. But a lot of the time, if people are doing stuff manually and spreadsheets and like passing things along via emails and that type of stuff, that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of automating these kind of 
rote, repeatable tasks. And that's where a lot of the value can come in. Yes. Automating it and then presenting it in a way that's easily digestible quickly. So I'm like, oh, mm. I, I know what I need to do. Like, bubble it up to me because I don't want to sit around clicking around a dashboard and be overwhelmed with a million things to look at. So this is really interesting because people used to do this bubble up, I suppose. I mean, I don't particularly like the term insights, but I'm a bit feeling it's Saturday morning and it's 9.30. So, But people used to deliver insights in PowerPoint presentations and now we're able yeah. to deliver it in interactive dashboards. And that, that seems almost like a paradigm shift, right? In a lot of ways. Exactly. Yeah. And that was actually part of the thing that got me to start my company was I saw all these vendors coming in charging, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and all they would deliver was a PowerPoint. And <laughs> I thought, well, I could do better than this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, and for less, you know, we'll, we'll, we're small, we're startup, so we'll, we'll be scrappy and we'll do way better than these, you know, I don't want to name the big four consulting firms, but we could do better than them. So that's what we did. Yeah. We, and you know, PowerPoint's not the, terrible either. Like when you're kind of, I like to use it when I'm iterating over just the results so far, the progress to date, but ultimately I'm going to deliver you something that's living that you can use moving Mm. forward. Yeah, absolutely. Something you said to me last time we recorded a podcast, which must be five or six years ago or something like that. And I've heard you say this elsewhere, I think, is that you want people to be jumping into data in the future the way people adopted email a couple of years ago. That's yeah. a poor paraphrase, right? No, that's I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, um, I still believe that. Yeah. And I suppose my question and or statement is, I think what you do in building shiny apps and these types of tools in general is part of this movement. But I suppose, how, how do you see that's panned out so far? I see it happening slowly. I think we have to be the kind of stewards of that process where I want to show you what I'm talking about when I say that, you know, you think you're asking a simple question or you think it's counting isn't hard, but it is. Yeah. I'm going to show you what actually happens when I put together what you're thinking in your head. And then you're going to see how many different things and nuances actually occur once we actually start building. Mm. And then the more you get to see the data, because I'm going to, I'm going to show it to you and somehow in shiny or whatever it is, your question is going to come to life through data. And then you're going to see, oh, when I start slicing and dicing by all these different areas and segments, I end up with like an N, a sample size of two, right? Yeah. It's just getting them thinking and, and starting to see it more and more. And I'm starting, I am starting to see more of my clients who I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't normally give access to a dashboard. I wouldn't normally have them involved in the process. I'm just seeing more people get involved. And so I think it's getting there. But yeah, I think between Excel and looking at tables and understanding just aggregations, it's going to be, it's, if your job has anything to do with data, you've got to be like looking Absolutely. at data. Yeah. You've got to know the data set you're working with to some extent. Very much so. And for all the crap that Excel gets, for good reason as well, a lot of the time, it is an incredible tool that opened up the world of data to millions, yes. if not tens of millions of humans around the world, right? Yeah, no, it totally is. I have, you know, I have my qualms about it. I will use it for certain things. I, there's things where I hate that it, you know, destroys my dates or it does stupid things. But I try to also explain the brittleness. Like when I see it, something that's being used in production in Excel, I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's get away from there and, you know, yeah. write a script or put it behind a, a dashboard. But we, you know, our dashboards, we usually have an export to Excel 
button because mm. all our clients, you know, they live in Excel and then yeah. they can go and do whatever they want with the data as well. So sometimes our, to- our dashboards are, are really just a way to standardize the SQL because so that the client doesn't have to write the SQL. Yep. And it, you know, some people would say, well, why not just use Tableau then? And it's like, well, there's things we can do in charting. There's more flexibility. We, I, I have shiny depending on the use case. Yeah, totally. And I think speaking about, you know, what Excel does with dates and that type of stuff, I think there was a repo that I saw a while ago that it was like Excel fails or something like that. And it's all the things like a hundred different examples of Excel doing something nightmarish. You know about the gene symbols, right? They're all, oh yeah, they get transformed to dates. And so exactly. there's like millions of them out in the literature that they're just... Wild, isn't it? Yeah. So this actually, before jumping in to the ins and outs of end-to-end data science, if we're talking about fails and failure modes, we have talked about some of the biggest value that data science can deliver. What are some common failure modes? Or how can data science fail? Like, it can fail a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I, I'm not one of those people that's like, you know, I am kind of a pessimist in this sense. Um I saw I saw JD join by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, Hi, JD. Yeah, he's made some great points as well. I know. He actually he made a point that looking at data is fantastic. Making sure pipelines have access points to peek into data being yes. transformed, which Huge. is yeah, yeah. I like that. Those just more transparency in general to the business or to whoever's using it is just I think a requirement. Like it's key. Yep. Um, otherwise, you're just I wouldn't. I want to know how something's working before I start putting it out into the fields, at least to some extent. But Absolutely. that's just maybe that's just me. But yeah. no, I, I um sorry, we were talking about uh failure modes. Yeah, how, failure how modes. data science yeah. can fail. Yeah, I mean, again, it's like people think that it's like there's this magic data science box and you they put the data in, like you know, just feed it in and then out comes insights and profit, right? And that's that transparency part that I think is still lacking for a lot of people mm. of like what goes into this. So failure modes, number one, starting and just doing stuff. I've seen this happen all the time. Standing up big clusters, getting a, a Hadoop cluster, Spark, whatever it is, Databricks, and then just putting all the data into a data lake. And so you're like checking off a box, but no one knows what the point is or what they want to do mm. with it, right? So failure mode number one is like not formulating a question in the first place. Mm-hmm. Data science is not this magical thing where if you just throw the data in, you know, magic stuff appears. And it's one of those things where I think that the biggest thing, and you and I were talking about this earlier, is communication. Like, you tell me you want all this data together, you want to visualize these charts, you gave me 20 ways you want to visualize data. But can you tell me why that is? Like, what are you ultimately trying to do? And after having that conversation with the client, I usually could come away with a better grasp of what it is they're trying to accomplish, and then build them something rather than just generating charts and sending them reports and PowerPoints. It's like, let me just give you a tool that's going to like do what you need on a rinse and repeat basis. But that process, it can be difficult, especially if you're not like in direct communication with, you know, the end users. Yeah. And ideally it is iterative and bespoke, you know, there are patterns we can form, but it does come down to the actual question. One thing I'm hearing here is doing your best as possible to tightly couple the data work to the actual business question. Yes. Tying it back to, I, I'm always asking, well, why? Why do you want to do that? Mm. And sometimes people just don't have a good answer. And then we yeah. got to go back to the drawing board. And I say, well, I'm not just, I don't want to just make charts for fun. Let's yeah. figure out why you want to do this. 
And then sometimes, you know, other than that, you know, usually we get there. Uh, what I, the other failure mode I think is trying to be too thoughtful up front and build up detailed requirements. And mm-hmm. I'm like beating a dead horse about this, this rapid prototyping idea, but I still firmly believe in it. It's still been very successful. I was just on a cl- project where the requirements document was pretty good. I could go back to it and look at the R code and figure out if things were working the way they were expected. But I'd ask questions about, hey, can I reference this in the requirements document? Because I need to like, uh, you know, I need to update the code. And they'd say, no, no, that's out of date now. I think, okay, well, mm-hmm. then where are we gathering all this updated information? Where's this updated information coming from? Well, the yep. updated information was coming from the scientists and the clinicians. And it was just being relayed in like emails and all over and here and there. And so it's just, you have to iterate. I think you build a V0, you put it in front of your scientists or your users, you get that feedback, you track it somewhere and you make a few small changes and you put it in front of them again. Yep. But it just doesn't work if you're you're thinking you're going to anticipate every little thing with a data product at the outset. Absolutely. So I think this is a really nice segue into the importance of rapid prototyping, which we've mentioned a few times. I don't know whether it'd be worth talking through a specific example where rapid prototyping has been really important or just general patterns or... Um, well, I have, I do have screenshots of some examples. I have some shiny apps that are examples, but I don't know if, if you wanted to save any of that for later. I can let's, do it let's now save, too. Let's, oh, no, let's save, let's save them for later, I think. Okay. For the end. I do have, I have a good um, example that does have some, some slides on the rapid prototyping. Great. Um, okay. Should I share that? Definitely. And what I'll try to do, I'm just making a co-host, what I'll try to do is talk through it because we're going to release this as an audio only podcast as well. Oh, okay. All right. So there, there's this use case that I think this is an awesome one. I just, I still talk about this and we're still working with them, but they're a hardware manufacturer. They make the diagnostic instruments for hospitals around the world. And they're, when you get your blood work done in the hospital and it comes back really quickly, that's them. That's like what they make. Um, Amazing. And, you know, with any hardware, there's going to be hardware failures. And so they were manually identifying those faulty instruments after they were deployed in the field, which is pretty typical. There's a complaint that gets sent in, it gets shipped out, gets repaired or whatnot and sent back out. But one of our contacts there saw this and thought, there's no way that we couldn't catch these first because there's a ton of data coming off these machines. And so the data is a bunch of metrics at various time points. And I thought this is a perfect use case for anomaly detection. And so we, the rapid prototyping idea that comes into play here is I started with like just different iterations of the anomaly detection first, where let's try removing outlier values first. Let's look at different proteins and different time points. And you start to realize you're doing all these combinations. And then I'm looking, I'm paging, literally paging through charts and paging through charts. And it got to the point where it just seemed to make sense to put this in a Shiny app. And this is why the rapid prototyping, Shiny is so good for this uh, use case in general, because now instead of having to look through 100 charts, I can just make some drop downs, I can change the parameters, and then I can give this to the client and also get his feedback in real, you know, semi real time versus yeah. this kind of async. I'm going to, I have to make the charts. You have to wait on me. And then I have to get your feedback and I have to go back. And exactly. so this enabled him and I to communicate so much faster. He would, he would, he would run these on real data too. And he'd say, Hey, yeah. Tanya, like this popped up. What does this mean? 
Amazing. And it sounds like that going through these types of apps with an end user seems like there's so much utility there in terms of you getting their domain expertise through it, them understanding what you're get, you getting feedback on what you're building for them as well, them understanding what you're intending to present. It, it seems like there's we're hitting like three or four really important points there in terms of what this type of iterative rapid process delivers. Yeah, and it's I'm a visual learner in general. I need to see things. I want to see the data. I just just give me the data. Let's build something and yep. and react to it, right? And the other thing that's nice is all these parameters. He can now play around with these are essentially like parameters to a model where he can play mm. around with different thresholds and figure out what works best. So I'm not relying. He's I'm not relying on some model just tell me what's perfect. Sometimes it's a combination of he, the human knows best, you know, whole human in the loop thing. And he knows this data better than I do. So let me see what he thinks by examining it visually. Yeah. So it's this whole feedback loop that it enables as well that I think is just critical. Fantastic. So that was the one example I wanted, I was going to mention. But then I do have, of course, a few others. And I was going to demo those those shiny apps as well. Yeah, later. so let's save that to the end. That's a little a yep. little teaser of where we'll be going. I'd like to just before diving into any more details to just just have a think through and reason through what end to end data science actually means to you and what all the moving parts are from start to finish. Yeah, and I remember you asked me. It was a good question. Like, do we call it full stack data science or end to end? I was thinking, mm. you know what? That's a good question. And really, it is about. It's the end-to-end -end process because yeah. we're talking about really the people. So the way we think about it is number one, I want to be there at the outset of defining the, the goals. If I'm not, it's it's not already a failure. Like it could probably be salvaged, but you know, you can't find a needle in a haystack of data if the Absolutely. the haystack was created in a vacuum. If that, if that makes sense. I think that makes combined. perfect sense, strangely. Yeah, it was a wonderful <laughs> mixed metaphor, but I loved it. But it's uh, I used to in run a, this in a in a needle stack haste, no in a haystack vacuum no one can hear you scream data. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's scary. I'm gonna have nightmares about that now. Well, it is Friday the thirteenth. So <laughs> I remember, you know, I when I worked at the biotech company, um, you know, there were times where we'd come back or we'd get we'd get. It's always the case that salespeople go and make all these promises, and mm. uh, I'd be talking to the scientists after. And they'd say, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, like this is the experimental design of this for this project. It just wasn't set up to do that. I mean, like the laws of physics can't be broken to make this happen, right? Yeah. Um, so we're not talking to that extent, but I it is sort of at that point where it's like, look, I need to I want to be there to talk to the end users who are going to use the tool, who are trying to take action, and let's make sure that we're collecting the data appropriately. So that you can answer those questions and you can take the appropriate steps needed after you look at this tool. And so to me, it's a whole process that goes from initial meetings, which is why when we're scoping, we're always asking about who should we be talking to? Mm -hmm. We do stakeholder interviews. We talk to the right people. And then it goes to this kind of uh, what I call like a collaborative kind of mock-up wireframe process. And this is where you start to get them thinking about how are you going to use this thing how do you envision using this? And we'll actually live create a mock-up with them. Amazing. And we're like, oh, so how are you th like, How are you thinking about... Because people will just throw stuff out there and I'll say, well, where do you think that's going to live and how do you want to control that? And then they... So this would be a, a, a live mock-up of the, the Shiny app? Yep, exactly. Yep. Really helpful, actually, to do that. Like, 
it's I highly recommend it because then you're not going back later and moving stuff all around and it's like no one knows how to use it. I don't remember where this is, but I heard you recently speak. You gave a really nice example. I hope it was you. I hope I'm not messing this up of like trading apps, right? Um, Trading. Yeah. And so I, I think the example was if your stocks have gone up a certain amount and it's obvious that you probably want to sell at that point, having the button oh. next to it yeah. saying, hey, sell instead of having to dig deep three levels down and click through. Yeah. 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 Like, a, like having like very clear call to actions yep. on the somewhere on your dashboard is huge. Having very self explanatory instructions or tool tips or anything that guides yeah. the user through this whole experience. Cause when you're building something too, it's very easy looking at it and think it's obvious, but yep. you're looking at it every day. So I yeah. try to make it almost like, yeah, hey, here's what you do. Like, yeah. here's or what the we export to Excel button that you mentioned earlier, right? Like having something as right. simple as that, which provides a huge amount of utility for the end user. Yeah. And there's a lot yep. of nice art packages that do a lot of this cool stuff for yep. me. So it's nice. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Keep- yeah. Um, so then, so yeah, we mock it up and then I'll put together a very basic, like a V0 or a prototype, a POC and, you know, connect that either to extracts or live data, depending on the access we have. And we'll start very simple and we'll put it in front of them. Great. Now the floodgates open, right? Mm. <laughs> all the ideas, all the things that weren't in the requirements doc, if there was one, all the, gotchas and the little weird things about not enough data here and the edge cases here and how I want to visualize this and how I want to drill down and how I want to navigate. You just get everything now. It like Mm. opens up everyone's creative juices. Suddenly, you know, everyone has ideas (laughs) and that's good and bad, right? Because now you got to prioritize as well. So what we do is we collect all that feedback and we have, we'll have a meeting and walk through it and I'll give Mm -hmm. them estimates. I'll say, here's, you know, if you need this, this is how long it will take, but this has to fall to the bottom. And based on their client needs, you know, they'll hopefully prioritize accordingly. And then, you know, once they feel comfortable with it, they've, we've had some internal testing. I try to get in, I always try to get internal testing resources because we're a small team. Also, yep. I'll just keep our costs down and we can focus on what we're good at. They know their data. Yeah. Like go, th- go through some testing phases, start to, you know, mature up the app, whether it's clean up the code, optimize it make things faster, connect now to live data, and then deploy it on their Arc Connect or whatever it is. And it depends on the client, but there's even clients where we've deployed prototypes internally just for them to test on Arc Connect. Mm. So it depends on if it's an internal tool only or if it's like we need to serve this up to our customers. Typically, we're making shiny apps that are for internal consumption. Uh, but we have done, we have one, a few coming up that are probably going to go from internal consumption to client facing, which I think is a fun segue because you got to figure out the personas, who's using it, how do we make this better? How do we now set permissions up for the clients to use it? What do we want the client experience to be, right? It can be a little quick and dirty for internal, but it becomes a different Mm. ballgame when you deploy it for clients. Absolutely. Yeah. The expectations are, are totally different at that point, right? Yeah. And I just tell people, you know, when we're in the testing phase and prototype, like this is not you know, the word of God yet. Don't tell anyone it is. Like, until yep. we go through this testing and everything, this is art of the possible. We're in development phases. And this is kind of the pros and cons of rapid prototyping is people mm-hmm. see that really nice, shiny dashboard and they think this is a finished product. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is very much not. This is an intermediate product that yep. is a work in progress. Yeah. And it can be a work in progress for a long time. 
it's just we got to check the different boxes of what we feel really good about, what's really been tested, and go from there. Totally. That's my like um, fluffy high level. I don't have like a you know that's the general process we use. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you spilling that out. And I'd love to kind of dive into a few of the details there, starting with how do you even think about scoping out projects and maybe going through to how you think about measuring success at the end. But yeah, maybe we can jump in and think yeah. about the scoping phase. Sure. So we're flexible. That's a nice thing about being a small company. It, when we feel, we have a few discussions at the outset. If we feel like the guidelines are not very clear, if they don't have concise goals in mind, if it's there's too many unknowns, that's when we'll do more like a time and materials. And we're going to say, look, we're just going to come in and do a one month kind of exploratory scoping, honestly, mm. where we come in and look at what's happening, have a few meetings with your various stakeholders and figure out what it is we're trying to do here. Yeah. That's, Understand that's the like, business a bit more and yeah, figure out what data like, there is. Right. That's the safe play. Like before we open the, if we open the hood and see like, this is a mess, you know, we want to know before we sign like a six month contract. And mm. usually they're very on board with that. They're like, yeah, makes sense. Let's get you access and just come in and you tell us what you can do. And then we'll put together like a three month plan. Three, six months. But for the scoped, the nicely scoped ones, which I love, it's like, we have a need. We have even a mock-up. I can get you data. And here's what we want to do. Here's the the action that needs to be taken. For example, that patient one, we need to follow up and figure out why this patient's medication has not gotten to them. That's like chef's kiss. It's like, we can build something for you that does that uh, very nicely. So in that case, we have our overall goals, summary of the project, and then we have our deliverables. And in this case, it would be, we, we spell it out, the one view, here's the functionality it's going to have, we'll have an export to Excel, and we get very specific. Um, anything else, you, you get into scope creep and it gets messy. And then the timeline, pricing, and then we have key assumptions. And key assumptions are the things that you look at and you're like, yep, They've been screwed by this before. So they put that in there. Yeah. And mainly it's around things like if you're not, the client needs to be available to answer questions within two weeks or one week turnaround time, right? Or we won't hit the deadlines. The data needs to be in such a state that we have access to it and yada, yada. We don't guarantee model performance in any way. We're not going to say we absolutely guarantee 95% accuracy, right? Anyone selling you that is full of it. So yeah, I think, and the key assumptions is something that just you learn over time and you just put them in there for the next time. Yeah. Amazing. I suppose I'm also interested in scope creep and how you manage it and tame it, but also like scope creep can be very dangerous. But as we know, the truth of the matter is it's a lot of the time, at least somewhat inevitable because things change. Like if the scope of statement of work and scope document says, oh, we're going to deliver on these buttons and that we're going to solve this and, and that is when you deliver that, it's like, oh, actually the business problem is actually this. And we didn't quite realize this until we started delving into the rapid prototyping of dashboards with you, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, all the time. Yes. Yeah. I, we, have, we have one pretty cool project, actually. Uh, the, if you look at the initial wireframe compared to the final product, it's like bells and whistles and like the Corvette version. But we scoped it. We did it in phases. Mm. So, But it happens. And the give and take is kind of... We had leftover at time from the first phase. So we said, look, we'll roll those hours over and, and work on all these extra things that weren't in scope for phase one. And then inevitably, you've got more testing and bug fixing to do because software development 
but it kind of, it definitely becomes sometimes a judgment call too. Like, do I want to work with this client again? Do they have more interesting work? Are they, is this kind of an act of good faith that, mm. you know, we will. And so, you know, there's, there's give and take, like usually they're pretty reasonable. Clients are pretty reasonable. If they're not, you know, you just kind of set the precedent and like, you know, you draw the line and, and move on to the next project, but totally, it, it definitely happens. And it's something that you kind of just have to be a little flexible and adaptable and, and try to figure out ways to the way we've tried to work around is put literally number of hours for each task and just say, here's the bucket of hours. Like you choose now what you, based on your budget. Yep. Makes sense. I'm wondering whether I really like the department of defense example. I, I wonder if that's something which changed throughout. Maybe you could talk us through that. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. So it's none of it was classified so I can talk about it. I didn't need like security clearance. Initially they had, they basically had a bunch of budget to do this AI ML initiative whatever it was. And they figured out, well, you know what? Our inventory data is a mess. And when I say a mess, it's just, it's all entered manually. So everything that the army purchases from Blackhawk helicopter parts to batteries to laptops gets entered in like a handheld thing mm. or on the, com on the computer. And it's by humans, right? So yeah. there's errors. Now their whole goal, their mission statement was like, if we don't know what we have on hand, how can we be mission, you know, ready? How can totally. we be in a state of readiness? Totally makes sense. So it wasn't as simple as just find the duplicates or just do some fuzzy matching. It was much more complex than that because we had a lot of free text data, a lot of six digit codes where zeros would be O's and twos would be Z's and mm. uh, one word would be off or one letter. So actually really talented friend of mine came in to work on it with me. And he was using all these genetic string algorithms to do this work. Right. And Interesting. We, and we like built it very custom, tested it, and found what worked best for their data. And we took that same approach with the rapid prototyping. We built a shiny dashboard and we enabled the users at the army to then interact with it and tell us, you know, is this right? Is it not mm. right? And have that feedback loop to then improve the algorithm. Um, it also sounds like there's a need for maybe jumping in and starting to hand label data or. Yes. You know, it sounds like there's a bunch of manual stuff involved there as well, right? Yeah. And that's the step that no one wants to take or do, right? It's time consuming, but it's like, hey, just hand label, you know, a hundred of these, thousand of these, whatever it is. And, you know, the, the algorithm, the model will get better. And then once you feel confident, we can turn it on and then start automating the stuff. Because mm. AI is like, there's a huge leap from machine learning to let's automate the work. Do you trust the machine enough to actually just turn this on and let it go? Yep. I would almost always say you need some kind of dashboard monitoring what's happening, right? For you sure. need someone checking in on it. So it's there's some people that still think that like the bots are just going to come and kind of like do this stuff, no problem. Yeah, I don't want to get too tinfoil hatty. I always <laughs> I, my spidey sense tingles when anyone says that, including myself. But I do think a lot of the machine learning, a lot of the software and quote unquote AI built around machine learning. There's not a conspiracy per se, but I do think big tech's interests have been to, I suppose, at least hide a lot of the work that's done in hand labeling and claim a lot of its AI. And see, I mean, one of the most cynical examples is that Amazon Mechanical Turk used to market itself. They were literally just getting people to hand label stuff, right? And they used to market themselves as artificial, artificial intelligence, right? So... And that, like, my mind contorts when I think about yeah. that. No, that's um, just like the necessary mechanism in order to 
like train a model in my mind. Yes. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we use that. We used a similar tool at one company. I was at uh, Crowdflower, it was called at the time, to exactly do that, like yeah. hand label things so we could then train the model. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, I don't know, I, I think we shifted gears a couple times with them, but it was mainly around they had another initiative where they wanted our, our input. And, you know, they, then they wanted a training. It was more like they were kind of doing this massive AI ML initiative at the DOD. And we were kind of evangelists of that whole idea and showing yeah. what was possible. And I got to present this work at the Pentagon and to four-star generals. And Amazing. it was pretty cool, you know, it was, it yeah. was fun. And, but also, I mean, the fact that, you know, like, and I mean, I think Department of Defense, of course, incredibly sharp people, highly competent people as well by nature of their work on, on average, at least at the top. I I am interested that they were like, hey, let's do AI ML. And then it was like, actually, like the inventory stuff is some of the most impactful stuff. So once again, it comes down to counting and figuring out what's there and that these are kind of the hard tasks of AI boiled down to pretty simple questions, which require a lot of work, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's simple. There's a lot of work that is required by people still. And we need it has to be collaborative. It has to be that feedback loop. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to think about and talk through how you measure the success of data science initiatives. And even if we kind of know how to do it at all. Yeah, oh, it's that's like the holy grail. So there's some... <laughs> I think there's some projects where it's very possible. There's a couple of ways we consider it successful. One is adoption and use of the tool. Mm -hmm. If people are logging in and using it, I'm already Amazing. pretty pretty pumped. Yep. You know, we actually one of our clients wanted us to track the number of logins by user and everything, and it was we did that and just actually sort it in a Google sheet. It was a live kind of connection, and we saw the user when they logged in and. There's getting a lot of a lot of action. So I'd say that's one. Some of them are not like quantitative in that sense. The other one is they're using it to there's time savings actually. Mm. So I guess it is quantitative, but they're using it as part of their monthly process they had. For example, where we were doing something for a small drug company, they were manually putting together all these reports again uh, around all their clinical trials and drugs and how many deviations there were in the each study. And we managed to bring that time down from like 40 hours a month to two. Mm, so that's, wow. that's one of those things where instead of someone spending a full work week, you know, they send us the data and it gets published to the Shiny app and they're, they can use that for their monthly, you know, meetings. Um, yep. So adoption, time savings. And then in terms of metrics, yeah, we just had a, a case of this where the sports company I work with, they're, you know, they're working with a major, the major leagues like the National Women's Soccer League, the MLB, et cetera. And they want to measure, you know, the the effect of sponsorship, let's say. Mm. So if Nike sponsors, you know, the NFL, how does that, you know, is that a fruitful relationship for Nike? Well, it depends. Like, do we have the data needed to track that? What does Nike see as success? Mm. Um, are they looking to increase sales on their footwear? And if so, do we have that data? We actually, we do. We have transaction data at this company. So it's tying it back. It's just understanding, well, what is your goals? What are you trying to do? And can we measure it? Yep. And if we can, that's like, that's an easy one, right? That's great. Okay, well, we'll tell you if it increases over time. But then you get into, you know, is it causal or not? Yeah, exactly. 
But so those are the big three. And I'd say that last one is a very iffy, you don't always have it, number one, because someone didn't ask the question of, well, what do you actually, what is success to you? I can't make it up for you. And number two, do we have the data to measure that? Yeah. Um, So do we want to increase spend, you know, in this category, year over year? Great. We can measure that and tell you if what we did helped with that. And tying this back to kind of initial goals and and, and scoping out, is is this something you do your best to think through during the scoping phase as well? Yes, exactly. That's why I want to be there at the beginning. It's like, yes, exactly. before Before you make these promises, I want to make sure, number one, we can answer, we can help them with whatever mm. question it is they have. Number two, we have the data. And yeah, exactly. Like being there at the beginning. Uh, and then also sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, we just need uh, insight into this landscape, this drug landscape. And if we're able to do that for any data set we upload, like that's success. So yeah. we make sure that the whatever we build is generalizable and can abstract for them. Yeah, great. We've been talking about the impact of, of data science and, and machine learning across a lot of industries and the work you do. I, I want to talk briefly about what it means to operationalize or productionize models and data science work, because I think this term is overloaded. But at the same time, we hear there are the trolls who say like R can't be put in, isn't good in production and that that type of stuff. We all know that isn't the case. But I think we have a limited view of what productionizing models and data science means. And th- one example I'll give is, I know of um, a big tech company that has data science work done, which the question is, where do we put, where do we buy billboard space on major arteries in the Los Angeles metropolitan district, something like that, right? Um, right. And there's machine learning work and data science work that goes into that that's delivered as a PowerPoint presentation or Google Slides or wh- whatever it is, right? And a multi-million, if not tens of millions of dollars decisions are made around this. And that you may say, that oh, that's not productionized. I, I think that's not particularly useful if you're saying it's not productionized because it doesn't, isn't put like up as a, you know, an endpoint or a REST API or whatever. Because right. the truth is it's operationalized and it's one of the biggest multi-million dollar decisions that needs to be made. So I'm wondering how you think through the productionization and operationalization discussion. Yeah, it's another one of those things where I don't necessarily think about, yeah, like the technical aspect of it. It's like, are the people, are people using it to make decisions? If they mm. are, I think it's, I think it's productionized. Yep. So just try and think of um, an example of that. Like a lot of our, some of our best stuff that's been in production just pulled data from, you know, Google Sheets, because that was just the easiest way for the client to input data and for them to, you know, access or for our app to update. Sometimes, you know, it's it's just a, a matter of, you know, it's gone through all the necessary steps through this rapid prototyping or end-to-end data science where now we feel we trust it enough that we can run it live on new data that might also be in production means like, okay, it's, it's updating now and... Mm. Also, you're making decisions based off of it. Yeah, I think when you're just exploring and kind of you're in the early stages of coming up with hypotheses or you're in the early stages of getting familiar with the data, that's different. Yep. To me, production is definitely, it's being put in front of people and, and decisions are being made by the business based yeah. on what I see. Exactly. Yeah. And related, actually, there's some statistic. I can't even remember what the statistic is, and it doesn't actually matter. It's like 90% of models don't make it to production, and we need to improve that or something. And my question always is, maybe that's a good thing. 
Like if you're testing hypotheses constantly in a scientific manner, maybe only one in 10 models should make it to production or whatever, or even less actually, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, a failed a failed experiment is still a success, right? Yeah. Like plenty of publications exactly. have failed, failed results. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I did from my time in academic research, I did always think there should be more journals of failed results and we should incentivize uh, the publishing of yeah. failed results and not non results and that type of stuff. It would save and so it, much work. Right. And it would be amazing if we we're ever at the point where like you could actually reproduce their work, whether it's like a, a Docker or our Markdown report in the cloud or Jupyter Notebook. But imagine, yeah. I mean, it's really, we should be getting closer to that point, you'd think. But I think we're still a ways away. Yeah. So I'd love to jump in into looking at some shiny dashboards finally. We have, you know, 10 to 20 minutes left. It'd be great to ha have a look at some of the work you do and whatever you'd like to show and is most exciting and interesting to you. Yeah. Um, and then, so should I, for the podcast purposes, do we just kind of describe it as best we can? Yeah, let's do that. And we can then okay. direct people to the, the video as well. I'll rely on your... Uh, your articulation, then I'm sure you I'm know so, it's best. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's see. As my mom would say, I've never had a problem talking. So <laughs> this isn't as interesting, but this is a, just a cool um, example for one of our clients, Takeda, that they wanted to enable some more advanced outlier detection methods. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. The, the point here is I wanted to talk about ease of use and you you mentioned that and so mm. i always like adding an about that kind of explains it gives the user instructions on how to use it but what i really like is i think this is uh bs lib maybe there's a library that gives these nice just kind of hover tool tips great is this uh zoomed in enough yep that looks good cool. oh, maybe even yeah. one more would be great perfect so one thing that i also started adding is is example data if the, if the app requires an upload and maybe the user just doesn't have any yet or just wants to see what the format of the data should be, you know, it's just columns with values, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I like to add that. And then, yeah, they can go ahead and just upload. And, you know, another thing I like is having, you know, select column. You're basically being very direct about what the user needs to do. Yeah. Here, for example, select at least two numeric columns. And then we're getting immediate feedback about, you know, if there's missing data. Um, so just being, you're, you're kind of thinking about it as like an interaction with a, a person. It's not, I'm trying to think about it less of like, you know, this is a presentation, but this is an interaction. Like I'm having a yeah. conversation through a dashboard. Exactly. Um, so and so just, one thing I am seeing there, there's a bunch of exploratory data analysis you can do really rapidly. And then you can... I mean, that tab about outlier detection, you can immediately start selecting things and, and have that have that conversation and interaction with the app. Right. That's mainly around kind of just UX a little bit. I love these, mm. these hover tool tips. But the ones I wanted to talk through, there's two others. This is with the Sports Innovation Lab company in Boston. So for this particular example, I could talk through it. This was a case where we were doing a lot of different charting and reporting. Things like, Tell me if Boston Bruins fans are shopping for luxury goods more than the average, you know, person. Right. Uh, tell me if Xbox um, players are buying footwear from these specific brands more frequently than mm. 
the average population. So anyway, we, I, I, we had a conversation. I started to ask the, that question, like, what are we doing actually? And the idea is we want to identify audiences to help teams and leagues acquire new fans. So if you're trying to figure out where do these people shop because I want to place digital targeted advertisements with the whole idea is like, okay, then I need to figure out what's different about these fans and how do I attract them to come to a game, buy our yep. jerseys, right? So let's, so what we ended up building was, again, this is V0. Okay. This is actually connected Great. to setting expectations. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I love these picker dropdowns where it populates everything from the database. This is all server side. We can select, let's say the Washington Wizards, the NBA team. It tells me here what I've selected because there's so many here. I want to make sure I, I've kept track of what's selected. Mm -hmm. uh, so we list it out for the user and then we say go. And this is querying live and the Snowflake instance. And so this still needs work. This to me, like I want to add tool tips and explanatory things, but we made this like this week. So right, right away, I see categories like pharmacies, garden and outdoor, community services. And then I have these bars over here. Now, what do these mean? So these are the purchases per fan. And it's actually the difference between Wizards fans and the general pop. So this tells me what I want to add is that something like when we hover here, Wizards fans spend or have made 233% more purchases Mm. at fast casual restaurants than the general population. Great. So this is I'm going to place ads then at fast casual restaurants. Absolutely. And maybe I want to know which fast casual restaurants. And that's kind of next phase is, okay, let's add a drill down into the, the subcategory. Amazing. And just to be super explicit there and reflect to make sure I, I get it right, the fact yeah. that you have can have this table, you, can, you have the PPF change, um, and that you can rank order it, via percentage there really and then you'll add hover tool tips and that that type of stuff with um to drill down into more information but even that by itself goes such a long way to answering the question of where to put these ads right and it's like the thing i like about this is it's first tells me right away it says well here's the most significantly different one right fast yep. casual followed by ride share like the general pop has made or they're making 186 percent more purchases, right? So mm. more than double. And, you know, from there, it's like, that's one aspect, but the, these people are more advanced users at the company. They may want to explore and they have hypotheses. So I can go to categories over here then and say, well, I am actually interested in travel and transportation specifically. Mm. And this will break that down for you as but down here. So we can see, well, Wizards fans are not really, you know, purchasing taxis. If you want to target them, let's look at bike and scooter shares for example. And then we can take it even a step further and say, well, actually, I want to acquire more high value Wizards fans, which means the fans are spending a lot of money. So I'm going to segment this by top 25%. And that's based on just overall spend. So take the people spending the most on whether that's Wizards merchandise, Wizards jerseys, Wizards uh, ticket sales. And this is the general population is based off of 21 million consumers. So no. that's something where you know, we've built a view, so it's quicker. So yeah, so now you can do the same thing, but by a different segment. So now you're getting into kind of segmented. All right, I have my high value fans now, and it looks like they also are interested in ride share. And if we look at everything, professional sports, that's kind of redundant because these are sports fans. But it looks like ride share, scooter share, booking platforms, they're popping up to the top. Awesome. 
Yeah. So that's one example of like, rather than you could see how many different ways this can go. And there's a lot more that can be added here. But when you start slicing and dicing by where they live, the value, if we want to see it over time, seeing this over time is also answering a different question potentially. Mm. So yeah, that context matters. And they were actually, they were pretty happy with this in terms of like, okay, I can see this, where this is going. And I like it. I can now run this for any merchant in the database. And I don't have to go to the analysts and ask for, you know, one-offs. Can you give this to me now for the Bruins? Yep. I can just go in. I empower, we empower the user to go and do it. That's great. And then it allows you to go and figure out what, what to add next for V1 and V2 and V3, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, this is the first time I use this um, kind of visual here. And I really like the the little bar chart with the color coding. That's really cool. Table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. It's a little it's a little things for me I get excited about. Well, yeah, and it's the little things for end users that I mean, you know, I don't want to harp on a, too much about this example, but the the button export to Excel, it's a little thing, but it's little things like that provide arguably the most utility, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's next. Cuz then they could also compare, you know, the bottom 75 to the top 25 themselves without us having to have a whole meeting about how do we want to visualize it? You know, how do we want to, it's a whole new view. And when you're, you know, if you want to compare two things, now you've got a multi-select and now you've got, so it, a lot goes into just like minor things. Mm. Um, and I think this gives them also the idea that, oh, by the way, this, if this made, this looks significant, well, it's actually only, you know, eight fans. So yeah. I wouldn't hang my hat on eight fans. Yeah. So next is adding a threshold filter to say, you know, let's, let's guarantee at least like 50 or have some minimum. Amazing. Yeah, but I want I want them to see that because it goes back to that literacy, data literacy, transparency, so that they know like this can happen. Exactly. And the more you cut, and now you add state, home state, you're going to get fewer and fewer. And actually, I, I suppose it comes back to JD's point as well, where he wrote, "I'll repeat: looking at data is fantastic. Making sure pipelines have access points to peek into data being transformed. You could consider this an access point of some sort, right? But like, if then you decide to threshold, making sure that people understand that that's actually what's happening." Yeah, and if they see that without having known before, they'll be like, what's this for, you know? Totally. Um, so totally. this whole process is collaborative in that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you walking us through that. I will need to wrap up in a minute, but I I thought one question that I think several people have and have had is when doing the type of work you do end-to-end -end data science and in the consulting world, this comes back to the idea of data something. I mean, you. it, it seems like you need a, a huge variety of, of skills in a lot of ways. So how do you think about whether you've got to like delve into, you know, thinking about distributed compute and then maybe some data engineering and then building machine learning and being a machine learning engineer and then all, all of these different <laughs> types of things? I, seems I, like a lot. It is. I mean, I'm overwhelmed every day by it. I learn new things about R every day and I've been using it since 2005. So mm. really, I think it depends on what you want, what you like, focus on what you enjoy because, you know, you could, my downfall was at startups getting stuck into doing everything. And mm -hmm. while I, I learned a ton, I will, you know, I don't regret it by any means, but, you know, led to a lot of stress and pressure. And it, here's the thing when you're interviewing, at jobs, ask them, like, do you have a DevOps or data engineering team? Mm -hmm. um, and if they say no, and you're the first data hire, congrats, you are now it. <laughs> yep. That's you, you're the data scientist, you're the data viz, you're, you're everything. And that, that can be really fun and you can learn a lot. But if you, you know, if you're passionate about the visualization aspect, like 
focus there. There you can get a doctorate just in visualization. You can read Edward Tufte's work for, you know, a long time and yeah. study that. But for me, I, my, you know, I wore a lot of different hats. So I kind of am like master of none, jack of all trades. So yeah, I, I, I always tell people just find a data set that's cool and interesting to you and start playing with it. Uh, whether it's R, Python, Tableau, just start playing, dive in. There's so many tools out there now. Uh, their Kaggle.com has a whole website or a section dedicated to public data sets. Yep. So that's what I do. I find sports data sets and I started playing with them. And yeah, I think you'll, you kind of figure out just by diving in what, what excites you or what's interesting to you and yeah. focus there. And that's actually another point that you're super into sports. Your background is in a lot of biology and genomics and that type of stuff. And you're continuing to do that type of work. So you are pursuing things that are, that you're curious about, right? And pursuing intuition and curiosity with these things, I think is, is super key. Yeah. I still, uh, I always want any edge I can get in my uh, sports, you know, daily fantasy and sports betting, which is, uh, I'm considering a research expense. <laughs> awesome. It's data driven. Like it's fine. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but, so, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm just like, and I also do, I do stuff for video games. Like I analyze data because I'm a video game nerd too. So I don't only do data things though. Like I don't recommend that either. Like you can go outside and touch grass, like do other things. It doesn't have to be your whole life, but you know, I just have, it just so happens. Some of my hobbies also overlap with like cool data um, yeah. projects that I, I do. Totally. So I have one final question before to wrap up. What's my most exciting in the space for you at the moment, either now or in the coming years or? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually having a lot of fun with uh, the AI stuff, the new bots, like the chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, isn't it? Mid journey. But I, I mean, honestly, I don't see the application yet, like mm. from a business standpoint, other than like with the art stuff, I could see generating custom stock concept art, custom stock images. I mean, for your brand or whatever, it's, it can be cool for that. The chat GPT thing is wild. I had it write me a scraping script the other day and it was, it worked. Like I said, scrape me this table from this URL and mm. it just like wrote it for me. So that stuff's exciting. I think there's a lot of hype, but I'm afraid it's going to be like the next blockchain of 2022 and because people hype it with no actual application. Yeah. So I'd say that's like the fun thing. But then in terms of like what I think is actually really gaining steam is just uh, the whole data literacy thing. I think a lot mm. of people are just becoming more more aware of it. You're seeing sports on live broadcasts talking about analytics, talking about player tracking. So it's cool to just have what you do be more out there. Because most of the time people are like, I don't know what the hell you do. I, I tell them, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. I, I play with well, data. Yeah, do you, I mean, I tell people to go and watch Moneyball or whatever, right? So Yeah, yeah. That's a good yeah. example, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think that it's a slow burn but I think there is significant movement on the data literacy front in particular. I'm going to flip it then. What are you most excited about in the field? Or what do you see kind of like I, um, happening? I actually, it's tough because I'm actually very excited about the two things you mentioned and they're kind of at odds in in some ways. What I'm, yeah. what I'm most frightened about, which will lead us to what I'm most excited about is poor marketing or marketing away from impact. So like AGI and like, the future of work and these types of things are worth con considering in a lot of ways, of course. But I do think that the whole marketing of large language models and chat GPT moves us away from the importance of counting and how difficult that actually is. So I am really excited about 
data literacy about how a lot of businesses and a lot of different verticals are becoming aware of like the simple aut automation things that that we've been talking about can really impact their businesses. I'm also really excited about bringing more like science to business in general. I think there's not a lot of science on average to data yeah. science. Yes. There's a lot of data. There's not a lot of science. And it's because we don't have the culture, the tools, the communication, all of these different things. We're figuring it out, figuring out what it looks like. And, you know, whatever it is, like a decade after we were told data science would be the sexiest job of the whatever, where, and I don't mean to be dismissive of, of that, actually. Yeah, I do okay. think it's incredibly important, but we're at a decade on from that. And, and figuring out what science looks like in industry. Personally, for me, I'm also excited. And that's one of the reasons I, I do this podcast. I, I'm interested in helping, you know, my background's in research science and I see a lot of research scientists entering industry. This is another big challenge. The, the academic brain drain, I think is, yes. and we don't oh, talk about that. There's a massive, there's a massive academic yeah. exodus right now. Yeah. And that's, that's very challenging. I mean, but the academic world has a lot of challenges these, these days, but, um, helping scientists figure out how to do science in an industry setting. And I'm really yes. excited about what that looks like. I, once again, I'm a bit cynical. I think it's ridiculous that the best tools we have for causal inference at scale are like AB tests. I mean, we can do better than that people, right? So I'm yeah. very excited about, you know, building tools and cultures and communities where we can like do more robust causal inference. And you even right. spoke to that at one point. You're like, oh, you know, we've got these trends and that type of stuff. Now, is it causal? Like, how do we, how do we start thinking about those questions? So bringing more science to data science is what I'm really excited about. And that's like our mission, honestly. It's that's because coming from that world, I'm, I'm like, let's put a little more rigor and scientific rigor into what we do, but also yeah. you know, get stuff done. We can get, still do things, you know, quickly and deliver value, but let's be mindful about our questions. Yeah. What we're actually, what we're trying to do. Exactly. Exactly. And demonstrating utility. I mean, a lot of the time we're talking about businesses that have been work and industries that have been working really well, right? And like they should be skeptical of putting in a, a lot of resources and capital and employee bandwidth into new things like this. So demonstrating the utility early on, this type of rapid prototyping, you know, all of these things are, are, are super exciting. So yeah. awesome. Which is oh, the reason I invited you here once again. <laughs> but thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation, Tanya. Yeah, no, it's it's always fun with you. I love talking about this stuff. And before I know, it's like the time flies. So yeah, yeah, we'll I'm sure we'll we'll be in touch, and we'll hopefully do another one when I uh, when I have when I have some more interesting content to share. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> I, you're always you've got an open invitation um, to come back. And before Excellent. we um. Or we can we can uh, we can see how how ChatGPT and mid, uh, the AI art bots did in a year. Fantastic! I was think we can even maybe do some transfer learning to train them on us, and then they can just generate the podcast episode. <laughs> um, um, and before we sign off, I'd just like to thank everyone for joining the live stream. Thanks for all the all the cool comments, and look forward to next time. So thanks everyone, and thank you so much, Tanya. Thanks, Hugo. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, and thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.